Ephesians chapter 6. And this evening, in our study of Christian warfare, we come to the fifth piece of armor that Paul says every Christian must put this on if you're going to stand against the wiles of the devil. There are six different pieces of armor that Paul mentions here in this sixth chapter. And uh, these ones that he mentions are not the full extent of what a Christian must have in order uh, to fight the devil, but they are representative of things that Christians need in this warfare. And at least what it does, it gets us thinking in the right direction so that we understand that we are in a battle and Satan is a very powerful enemy and we have to have the things that God supplies to fight against him. So thus far we've talked about four of these pieces of armor. Uh, We've spoken about the belt of truth. uh, And I've told you that I believe that that is the objective truth of Scripture. I mean that... That, that covers all of the doctrines that we find in God's Word. And Christians need to be very much aware of what those doctrines are and how to defend themselves in those doctrines because you're going to stand up sometime against somebody who will try to tear down your faith. And in order to have confidence in what you believe, you need to be sure of these doctrines of God's Word. Then there's the breastplate of righteousness. And if you remember, I said that refers to the imputed righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that Christ gives us when we trust Jesus as our Savior. So it's not talking about our inherent righteousness because that will always fail us. But the imputed righteousness of Christ will never fail. Thirdly, we talked about feet that are shod with the gospel of Christ. And that, I believe, Paul is speaking about the foundation of our faith. Uh, The basis of our faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and our feet have to be firmly rooted in the gospel of Christ because that is the very base of our operations. Then number four was the shield of faith. And Spurgeon said that this particular piece of armor covers up all the rest of the armor. He said this is defense for our defense. And when we talk about the... uh, the uh, shield of faith. We're not talking about saving faith here, but rather this is just the faith that you trust God for every single day of your life. You, you can't give up faith when you become a Christian. I mean, the, it's not just your initial faith that we're interested in. It's also the faith that it takes to live the Christian life every single day. And so when you get up in the morning, you need faith in God to help you get through the day. Now, then fifthly, we come to this piece of armor, and this is one that I really like to talk about. I mean, all the rest of them are good. I enjoy preaching about the others, but this is the one that that I really like to talk about because this is one that really helps battle-weary Christians. There are many Christians who get tired in their faith. It seems like the, the Christian life sometimes bogs us down with all of the troubles that we have to go through. And this is where Paul comes along and he says, Put on the helmet of salvation. And I want to show you tonight why the helmet of salvation could be better referred to as the helmet of hope. Let's stand, if you would, please, and we're going to read the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin reading at verse number 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the great truths that we learn in the book of Ephesians. Help us tonight, Lord, to understand a little bit more about this uh, 
this topic this evening, the helmet of salvation, or as we refer to it this evening, the helmet of hope. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I've just told you that the helmet of salvation is really needed for battle-weary Christians. There are many things that I could say when we talk about salvation tonight. I could begin this evening and make this an exposition of how a person actually comes to Christ and and how it's absolutely necessary for us to understand that we are vile, wicked sinners. We're in need of the grace of God. And only unless God should come to us and give us a revelation of his grace and of himself, none of us would ever be saved. We talked about this topic back in Ephesians chapter 2 and and the very first part of that chapter. And it'd be great to be able to stop and just run back over those things again and to understand that how we were just dead in our trespasses and sin. And then one day, through God's marvelous grace, he came along and he brought us from spiritual death into spiritual life. And he enabled us to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to put our faith and trust in him. And by that wonderful grace, God has saved us. That's a wonderful thing to talk about. And that's really the heart and soul of why I can even get up here tonight and talk to you that I can preach to you at all. It's because of what Jesus has done through our salvation. But that's not the main thing that Paul is talking about when he speaks about the helmet of salvation. And so to understand this a little bit better, what we really have to do is just go back in time to when Paul spoke to the Ephesians, when he wrote this letter, and see what the conditions were like as he tells them to put on the helmet of salvation. These were people that were in great persecution. The city of Ephesus was a very idolatrous city. It was very wicked. Uh, Christians there lived under the impression of the Roman government, not, not, not just uh, the people that were around them, but even the government itself was oppressive about the Christians that were living there then. You remember when Paul first came to Ephesus that uh, there was a huge uproar Uh, There was a a riot that ensued because of Paul's preaching of the gospel there. You may remember that uh, many of the people started trusting Christ, and when they did, it sort of ruined the economy of the city. Let me explain a little bit about what what that's about. Uh, There was a huge temple in Ephesus. It was the Temple of Diana, and this was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And there were a lot of silversmiths in the city, and what they did, they made little souvenirs little trinkets of that, of that uh, uh, temple of Diana, and they would sell those trinkets, and they made their money that way. Back when we were talking in Acts, I said this is kind of comparable to going down to Fisherman's Wharf, and there you'll find lots of souvenirs. You can find these little uh, keychains that have a cable car on them, or you might have the Golden Gate Bridge, Coit Tower, just about any of the, uh, the sites that you find in San Francisco. You can buy some kind of little trinket or souvenir that depicts that site. Well, imagine what it would be like if you were down on Fisherman's Wharf and you went there one day and all the shops were closed up. Nobody's buying anything. There's no souvenir trade there at all. Well, you can imagine that the merchants in that area would be very upset about that. I mean, even that guy that jumps out behind a tree, he'd lose his job because of uh, not... You know what I'm talking about? Okay, you act like you didn't know what I was talking about. But that guy, he'd lose his job if you didn't have all the tourist trade down there and all the things that are being sold. Well, this is a similar thing that happened in Ephesus when the gospel was preached and people began to trust Jesus as the Savior. They stopped buying all of those idols. 
All of those little trinkets that the silversmiths were selling, nobody was buying them anymore. And so these silversmiths got very upset about that, and so they caused an uproar, and they took out after Paul to try to to have him beaten and thrown out of the city. Well, these Christians in Ephesus were living under that type of persecution. They were hated by the people that were around them. They were hated by the government that they were living under. And that was just a taste of the persecution they'd gone, under, uh, gone through for so many years. And so after several years of all of that, living in that type of environment, these Christians were very tired. Now, they kept living their faith, but troubles never seemed to stop. There was always trouble around the next corner. So finally, it came to the point that their enemies were saying to them, why do you Christians keep doing this? Why do you still believe that stuff? I mean, there's nothing to that doctrine. You need to stop that. And I suppose that there were many scoffers like Peter talks about when he said in the last days people will come and they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? You Christians say that Jesus is coming back. You keep on preaching that there's a time when you're going to be raptured out of this world. Where is that time? Where is this Jesus? You've been waiting all these years. Where is he? And so what you really need to do is just give up your faith. And so these Christians were very tried in their faith, and they were very tired in their faith. And so Paul comes along here, and he says, this is why you need the helmet of salvation. And really what he's saying is you need a helmet of hope. You need to see the outcome of your salvation. Now there's a scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that helps us understand this in a better way. Take your Bible and turn back a few pages there, if you would, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Most of you are familiar with chapter 4 because that's where Paul talks about uh, the believers in Christ who who have died, and he says they've fallen asleep. And then he goes on and he talks about the great hope of the second coming. He talks about the rapture and he talks about the resurrection of the dead. And all of that ties into the same same, uh, 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 thing that he's trying to give them on this thought of hope. And so in verse 8 of chapter 5, this is what he says. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Now look at that last phrase. He says, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. If your Bible doesn't have cross-references, then right here on the side of your margin, you ought to write in, see Ephesians 6, verse 17, because that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. He's talking about the hope of salvation. Now, let's take a few minutes and let's try to understand a little bit better what he means by the helmet of hope or the helmet of salvation. I want you to notice, first of all, the hope of final salvation. The hope of final salvation. Now, once again, remember, Paul's not talking here about initial salvation. What he's speaking about is the outworking of your salvation, and he's talking about the all-encompassing factors of salvation that take place all the way from the time that you put your faith in Christ all through your life, even up to the time that you're glorified and taken into heaven. Now, he speaks about this in Romans 13, verse number 11, and he says, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. And so that verse is one that shows us that salvation is not just a one-time experience. Salvation is ongoing. Now, you put your faith in Christ, That's the life-changing moment. That's where you realize that you're a sinner and you come to Jesus uh, for for your salvation. But that's not the end of it because your salvation is ongoing. 
And so what, what Paul is saying here in the Romans is that after a certain amount of time has passed, after minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, each little bit of time that passes, that brings you one step closer to your final salvation. And that's when you leave this life and you end up in the presence of God. Now that's the goal of salvation. Jesus said it himself. He said, your goal of salvation, in so many words, he says, it's to bring you to the Father. And that doesn't mean just in a spiritual sense. It's to bring you to the Father where you actually come to the place where you meet God face to face. That you're in the presence of God. And that's what the Bible means whenever you hear someone say, our faith ends in sight. That's what it's talking about. When you finally come face to face with God the Father. And so the idea here is that salvation is ongoing. Now, I hope you remember, those of you that were here, that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when we first began Corinthians, we talked about the tenses of salvation. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The actual translation of the last part of that verse is unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's because the verb there is a verb of continuing action. So it's telling us that salvation is not just one single point in time, it's ongoing. Now, let's try to understand that a little bit better. And as we do, I want to review some of what we talked about in 1 Corinthians. How is the salvation in Ephesians and the salvation in 1 Corinthians How is he going beyond initial salvation to show us that it's an ongoing thing, not just our faith in Christ? Well, first of all, we'll look at our past salvation. Our past salvation is our justification. For every one of you here tonight that's a Christian, I can speak to you and I can talk to you about what happened in the past. What happened in the past was that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and at that very moment you were justified from all of your sins. In that moment that you trusted Christ, his righteousness was transferred to you. And now you have the righteousness of Christ credited to your spiritual account. And so that means that you're no longer guilty for any of your sins. Christ has taken all of that upon himself. That's the very moment that you realize that you were a sinner, you were on your way to hell. There was no way that you could avoid it unless God in his mercy and his grace would reach down and do something wonderful for you and bring you out of that lost condition. So that's when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the gospel of Christ. You believed in Jesus as the Savior. That happened in the past tense. If you're saved here tonight, that's happened to you. It's already happened. And you have been saved from the penalty of your sin. But it goes on because next we have the present salvation. And present salvation is our sanctification. Now the past is justification. The present is sanctification. Sanctification is what you're going through right now. Sanctification is being saved from the power of sin. Now, you see, this is really the whole point of spiritual warfare that we've been talking about. Because as Satan comes against you with all those wiles, with all those crafty methods that he has, as you are living for the Lord and as you are fighting against him, Satan is trying to bring you back under the bondage of sin again. And as you fight and struggle against him, the Holy Spirit is delivering you from the power of sin. So as you depend on the Holy Spirit, you are being sanctified day after day as you live in the Spirit and fight this spiritual warfare. Now, in that sense, 
uh, salvation or sanctification is progressive. The more that you use the weapons, the more that you become like Christ. And so you're able to respond to temptation in the very same way that Jesus did. When Jesus was tempted, he just turned to the devil and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. And that's what you do. As you're being sanctified, you're able to say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. And the power of the Holy Spirit takes over, and that power helps to deliver you from that, from that uh, ongoing uh, power of sin that's oppressing you. So you have been enabled by your past justification to go on living every day in the sanctification of the Spirit. So there we have justification and we have sanctification. But then we have something else. We also have future salvation, and that's our glorification. And this is really what Paul is talking about here tonight. This is where you put on that helmet of hope and you look to the end of all of your sin and to all of your struggles. That's when you're saved from the presence of sin. Now, in this life, as we live it here, the, the sin is all around us. The presence of sin is right here with us. We fight it every single day. But when you get to heaven and you're glorified, you are delivered from the presence of sin and you come into the presence of the Heavenly Father. So you were saved from the penalty of your sin. You are now being saved from the power of sin. And then finally, you will be saved from the presence of sin. Now, that's what Paul's saying to the Ephesians. He says, don't give up hope because your final salvation is coming. And so, to battle-weary Christians, when you put on the helmet of hope, when you have on the helmet of salvation, you have the strength and encouragement to keep on fighting because you have reward waiting in heaven. So thank the Lord for that because of this hope that we have tells us that one day this life will end. All the struggles and all the difficulties we go through, these things will end. This life, the Bible teaches, is just like a drop, one drop of water in the ocean compared to eternity. It's like one grain of sand on the seashore compared to eternity. And one of these days, this life is going to be over. But we need not think that all we do in this life is just simply endure. That we're left here on this earth just to do the best that we can and try to muddle through as best we can and uh, hope for the end and, and someday Jesus is going to come and take us home. You're never to look at your Christian life that way. And that, the reason for that is because God has something in this life for you as well. What people, what Christians really need to understand is that eternal life begins at the moment that you trust Christ. You don't wait till you get out of this life to have eternal life. You have it right now as a present possession. And so as you are here, God has done some things to enable you to enjoy life while you're here. And so when you've got on this helmet of hope and you really understand what's coming and you're living in the path where God wants you to go and, and you're being a blessing to others and, and working in your church and doing what God wants, that puts an extra bounce in your step every single day. It causes you to be vigilant. It causes you to be joyful. It makes you happy because you know what's coming. And so serving Christ adds to the enjoyment of going home to heaven. Now, let's go back here because there's something else about the helmet of hope we need to talk about. The second thing is the hope of security. You have the hope of security. This is one of the reasons why you can be happy going through the Christian life. You are secure in your salvation. Now, why then can I, as a battle-weary Christian, why can I be happy? Because I'm secure. And as hard as Satan may work against me, as powerful as he may be, one thing Satan can never do, 
He can never touch my salvation. Now, after all of Job's affliction, remember what he said? He said, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. And so Job, after all that he was, had gone through, he simply turned to Satan. He said, throw everything at, you want me de- at, at, at me that you want to, devil. Throw everything that you can, because I shall see God. Job believed in security. How do I know that I'm secure? Let me give you three reasons why we know. First of all, I have the witness of the Word. I have God's Word that says that I'm secure. Which I had time tonight to stay on this topic and talk to you about perseverance, speak to you about preservation of the saints. I mean, there is so much written in the Word of God on this subject, you absolutely cannot miss this. God's Word declares it. Now, God's Word is ultimate truth. God's Word is the lasting truth. And if God's Word says that I am protected, then I can have confidence that I'm secure in salvation. There's all kinds of scriptures we could go through. I'm just going to reference a couple for you tonight. Uh, You know these scriptures, and so we'll, we'll just talk here briefly about them. Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I hope maybe you remember the illustration that I gave on this when we were going through the Gospel of John. Jesus says that as one of his children, I am held in his hand. But he goes further than that because he says, not only are you held in my hand, but you're also held in the Father's hand. And so the picture that we have here is here is the Christian held in the hand of Jesus and then clasped over that is the hand of God the Father. There's no way that we're going to lose our salvation because God the Son, God the Father protects it. His word is forever settled in heaven. And he said, you are safe, you're secure once you put your faith in him. And then there's another scripture. I'm not going to read all of it but because we'll just reference it. In Romans chapter 8. You can start reading in Romans chapter 8, verse number 28, and you know the Scripture. It tells us that all things work together for them who love God. Now, we know the Scripture says that, but it also says, uh, or, or gives us the idea, that if all things work together for good, then how could it possibly work for good for you to lose your salvation? I mean, that one verse alone is a good enough proof of eternal security. But he goes on here because he's got verses 29 and 30 where he talks about an unbreakable chain of salvation. And he starts all the way from our election in Christ in the past, way before the foundation of the world, and he takes that all the way through our lives, even into our glorification when we're standing in the presence of God. And what he gives us there in those two verses is an unbreakable chain of our salvation. But he doesn't stop there with this proof because next he goes on to verses 31 to 34 and he says that if God was willing to give Christ for us, then won't God also give us everything that we need for life? Isn't he going to make sure that you have everything that you need to get through this life and get into heaven? Certainly God will do that. But he doesn't stop with that because he goes on and we got verses 35 through 39. And if you read those verses, you'll find out that he excludes everything imaginable. You can't even think of a single thing that's not included in that list. It says none of these things can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can take your salvation away. So you read it all 
and you come to the conclusion that we have the witness of the Word. And the witness of the Word gives us 100% assurance we can never lose our salvation. But then God gives me more. There's a second thing that He does. He's also given me the witness of the Spirit. I have the Spirit living in me. And what the Spirit does, He testifies with my Spirit every single day of my life that I am a child of God. That spirit living within me tells me that God is going to redeem my body also. Now, I've got, a, I've got a soul and a spirit that's been redeemed, but God's also going to redeem the body. And the Holy Spirit is living in, in me as the seal and the guarantee that that will happen. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us there, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed..." Listen, "...ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance." And earnest there means guarantee, which is the guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory." You understand what that verse means? That verse means that I have been bought body, soul, and spirit by Jesus Christ. On the cross, he saved me. He, he purchased me body, soul, and spirit. And he guarantees that the whole man will end up in the presence of God. So the earnest is a guarantee. And so to battle-weary Ephesians, battle-weary Christians, Paul says to them, don't give up, don't stop now. Because the very fact that the Holy Spirit lives in you shows you God's intention that he'll never forsake you. And not only that, since he lives in you, that shows you that God has placed a value upon you because you're his child. But then we have even more. Because thirdly, we have the witness of works. Listen to uh, Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is working in you. Now you see, God left you here because he has something for you to do. You're God's instrument to carry his word to other people who need the gospel of Christ. There are many people that God's going to save. We don't know the number, but all across the world, the scripture says out of every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, God's going to redeem some people. And there's only one way that God does that, and that's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he's done then, God has left you in this world as his instrument to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who don't know him so they can believe the same thing that you believe. So God has left you here. He hasn't abandoned you. He's just left you here, and he's given you everything that you need. He's given you all the power that you need to carry out his employment. Now, here we have then all of these things working together, and this convinces Christians of security. What the devil likes to do, he likes to work in the area of insecurity because the devil knows this. If he can get you doubting, if he can get you thinking that it's not worth it, that, that there's no use fighting, there's no use keeping it up, if he can make you doubtful, he knows that you'll live a defeated life. And so this is why Paul says, put on the helmet of hope. Don't let the devil destroy your hope. Hope is the thing that'll get you through because that's the anchor of the soul. All right, number three. Number three is what we're on right now, and that's the hope of the second coming. Now, there, there are things that are going to take place when Jesus comes back that a Christian can build his hope on. The first one is the visible return of Christ. 
I want you to picture for just a moment, if you would, what it was like for the disciples when Jesus was taken to be crucified. As they're watching him there, hanging on the cross is their master and their Lord. They've been with Jesus for three years. They've walked with him. They've talked with him. They've heard him speak. They trusted him. They truly believed that Jesus was the one who would be the Messiah. Now, the understanding of what was going to happen in the short term, that seemed to escape them a lot of times. And so they didn't really understand all what Jesus was doing. And it appears from Scripture that many times they thought that what Jesus would do, he would immediately set up his kingdom. Even if they put him to death, he would be right there to set up the kingdom. But here they have, here Jesus is taken, and, and it appears to them, not knowing everything, not being able to see all things, it appears to them that Jesus was taken against his will. Then he was placed on the cross. The Jews and the Romans began to taunt him, and they said, well, he needs to come down from the cross. I mean, he saved others himself he cannot save. Let him come down from the cross. And the disciples were listening to all that, and they're wondering, why doesn't Jesus do something about that? If he's God, if he's the Messiah, why doesn't he stop all this right now? Why doesn't he do something? And they didn't understand that Jesus was doing something right then. He was doing something very powerful right then and something they would come to understand later. But it looks like their hope is gone. And so they crucify Christ, they put him into the grave, and for three days there's no word, there's no sign, there's no sound, there's nothing. And then on the third day, Jesus came out of the tomb. Well, now the disciples are rejoicing. Jesus is alive. And for the next 40 days, Jesus made several different appearances. But then, after 40 days, Jesus ascended back to the Father. And so here we have the disciples again, once they're without hope. They're dejected. They don't know what will happen. Now, Jesus had already promised that the Holy Spirit was coming, but they weren't looking for that. They weren't thinking about that. They're in dejected hope. Now, the angels then, at the ascension of Christ, appeared to them and said to the disciples, the short version, have hope. You need to have hope. And here's what they say. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And so the angel said, have hope, because Jesus is coming back. And notice there they said, this same Jesus. And do you know that since that time, we've been told to do the very same thing. We've been told to look for the coming of Jesus. So what the apostles then did, after they received this word, they began to preach, they began to proclaim salvation, they went on under intense persecution, kept to their faith, and they kept looking for the coming of Christ. That's what the helmet of hope is for. That's why you put this on. And the Bible calls the second coming of Christ the blessed hope. That's what it says in Titus 2.13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why do we look for him? Why are we looking for Jesus? It takes us right back to where we started in the beginning with the helmet of hope. We look for him because when he comes, it means our final salvation is here. It's over with. It's done. Final salvation has come. And that leads me to a second reason why to hope for the second coming, and that's because of the physical resurrection of the body. Because Jesus came back from the dead, and that will be doubly confirmed when we see Jesus again when he comes back. Because he came back from the dead, we shall also rise from the dead. 
That's the whole argument. It's the crux of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you remember, he says, if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. And in effect, he's saying, if Christ is not raised, you won't be raised. But the fact is, Christ did arise. Christ did come out of the grave. Now, the Corinthian people were, were uh, confused about it. They thought, well, maybe the, the resurrection of Christ was, was simply a spiritual resurrection only. No, maybe his body didn't really come out of that grave. Maybe they're imagining it. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. And that's when Paul comes right back and he says, no, 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 you don't understand. All the apostles saw it. But that's not all. He said 500 people saw him after he rose from the grave. They had all the proof that they need. And folks, again, it will be doubly confirmed that Jesus arose from the dead when we see the bodies of believers coming out of those graves when Jesus comes back. So the helmet of hope tells us body, soul, and spirit will all be redeemed. But now there's one more element in this hope because in the second coming there is also the body's reunion with the spirit. Now that's wonderful to know that the body's going to be raised from the dead, but what happens to it? All these bodies start coming out at the resurrection of Christ. What do they do? Well, they don't float off into space somewhere. What they do is they're taken into heaven and they're welded back together again with the Spirit. And so there you have it, body, soul, and spirit in the presence of Jesus Christ and in the presence of the Father for all eternity. Now, I want you to notice how John puts this. And, and John talks about this as well. And this is not coincidence. The Scriptures fit perfectly, perfectly together. Take what Paul says, take what John says, put it all together, and you get the big picture. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth it's not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Now, you see this? It says Jesus is coming back. When he does, we're going to be made like him. But that's not the only teaching that he gives here. Because now, John's going to go back and tie what Paul says in here. And he's going to give us the big picture of why we're fighting this spiritual warfare and why we have to keep on. We've got this hope that's set before us. And the reason that we keep on is because that hope in us causes us to purify ourselves even as he is pure. What it does, it causes us to continue the fight. When you have the hope, you don't stop. And what you do is you get yourself continually prepared for the time that Jesus comes back. That's what you're supposed to be as a Christian. You're supposed to be every day living your faith, walking with the Lord, acting like Jesus is coming back, and prepared when he finally does show up. Now, John says this, and now, little children, John 2, 28, 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And we're going to make that the last statement on the listening sheet tonight. The helmet of hope will keep you from being ashamed when Jesus comes back. I just love the way the Bible fits together so perfectly. It ties it together. You've got Paul complimenting John, John complimenting Paul. And so, here we have it. Why do you need these pieces of armor? Because it's your hope. 
This is the thing that tells you internally that life struggles are actually worth it. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And that's why Paul says, put on this helmet of salvation. When you have on the helmet, you, ha- you are in the mental and you're in the spiritual shape that will keep you pure in this world so that you won't be ashamed when Jesus comes back. It all fits together. And this is why Paul says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessed word. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, who is coming back. We're just looking for that day. And Lord, help us to do what the Bible tells us to do here, to to keep looking, to keep watching, to keep ourselves pure. Help us to be prepared and not ashamed when Jesus comes back. May Jesus find us working as we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.